there's so many Unitarian inside jokes on this podcast today. But uh, if you uh, <laughs> well, but, if you put two U's together, if you put two U's you use together, they will remember. They'll have at least three opinions. Yeah, they'll have at least three opinions. I like that. Welcome to Faith and What Resonates, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith, spirituality, music, and the nature of inspiration. I'm Gil Gallagher, and I'm a professional musician and lifelong seeker. I was raised both Catholic and Unitarian Universalist at the same time. And as I grew up sorting my theology, I found my spiritual ground in music and theater. On this show, I interview folks about their faith journey and the role music plays in their lives as we explore the magic of the things that resonate. My guest today is Wesley Morrison Sloat. I've known Wesley since college, where we met at the UU Church of Lincoln, Nebraska. Wesley describes his spiritual background as UU mystical humanist, Methodist adjacent. He is also the producer of the New Faith New Media Network that produces this podcast. In our conversation, we talk about Wesley's experience growing up in the Methodist Church as the child of two Methodist pastors, his love of lyrics and the technicalities in music, finding moments of the sacred and the scientific, and the song Gentle Arms of Eden by Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer. We also talk about the UU principles and demonstrate how, if you put two Unitarian Universalists in a room together, not only will they have three opinions, but they'll maybe remember all the principles if sung like you do in Sunday school to the tune of Do Re Mi. This conversation also touches briefly on mental illness as well as contains a few adult words. So if you're listening with small children or generally need that heads up on such things, there you are. I'm so excited for you to hear this discussion, so let's jump in. Hey, Wesley, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Gail, it's great to be here. Uh, so I've known you since college. Yes, um, my freshman year, your sophomore year, right? Yeah, and, and uh, like Michelle, I think we, we also met at Nyhart, right? Um, either Nyhart or through other Wesley. Okay, yes. Yes, yes, yes. But um, yeah, this is it's so great that we're like making this network together and that now yeah. we get to interview you. It's awesome. Um, so go ahead and uh, tell my audience a little bit about your faith background and what you do in the world. Okay. Well, um, I grew up United Methodist, very United Methodist. Both of my parents were pastors in that church. And we, because of working in that church, they use what's called an appointment system instead of a call system. So the, the cabinet, which is the bishop and the district superintendents in each conference, uh, decide which pastors go where. So we move, the longest I remember living in any one place was four years. And, and that bred me sort of similar to uh, military kids, how they start relying on those systems built by the military, because when you have to restart your social life every couple of years, uh, any shortcuts are good. And I got really invested and involved in the church. Uh, then I'm started undergrad where I met you at UNL, and I was really involved in Cornerstone, which was a joint campus ministry uh, with the Methodists, Presbyterians, United Church of Christ, and Disciples of Christ. And that closed, that 
ministry closed my junior year, actually while I was studying in Berlin. <laughs> so <laughs> I left and everything was good and I came back and it was gone. And right before I left, I started going to the Unitarian Universalist Church in Lincoln with other Wesley. Um, and uh, I was really getting into it and I really liked it. And then while the while I was gone and the, my campus ministry and my primary spiritual community closed while I was gone, I felt very hurt and betrayed, but I was, it also pushed me into becoming UU entirely. Um, and that turned out to be really good for me. And so I finished strong. I helped start the official campus group for that church, um, which wasn't, it wasn't like an organization with its own minister. It was the way Cornerstone had been. It was an outreach group from the congregation there in town. And then a year after I graduated from UNL, I moved to California to go to seminary to become a Unitarian Universalist pastor. And while I was there, lots of stuff happened. Um, I got really sick and had to go on disability. I'm still on disability back in Nebraska. Um, but my plan is after the great pandemic ends to go to restart seminary and finish the process of becoming a union minister. Nice, 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 nice. I'd heard some of that story before. I had not heard about the bit about uh, Cornerstone Stone or um, I also, uh, I hadn't heard of the, of that, the Methodist experience being so akin to like the military brat experience before. Oh, except that you're, except that you're um, confined to a single conference. So mm -hmm. like when I was born, my parents were in the Dakota Conference, which is North and South Dakota. Um, then right before I started kindergarten, we moved to Nebraska and joined the Nebraska Conference, um, which we were in until I graduated high school. Um, the Nebraska Conference has now been combined with the Kansas Conference to make the Great Plains Conference which is where Michelle is. Mm -hmm. um, she's in the, the Great Plains Conference. Uh, so it, it'd be like being an army brat, but you only get moved between bases in Italy. Got it. Um, so, 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 it's, so it's, it's, it's not as like, a, like as big as, of a shift, but it is still like within, within this particular structure and it's just where right. I assign you. Yes, um, pastors and congregations can request a change. They can put in a request to the cabinet saying, I don't want to preach here anymore, or we don't like this person preaching here anymore, please change it. But they don't get to pick where they go, and they don't get to pick um, who they get. Okay. So. That's, that's wild. <laughs> um yeah oh that's well that's interesting i'm learning all sorts of new things about methodists on this show <laughs> uh what are the side effects um so i'm curious what um so and we'll get into the specific song you wanted to talk about but what mm -hmm. it has been your relationship with music and your faith that's a big question but that's what we do here. Uh, 
So Michelle probably talked a, a lot about Charles Wesley, mm-hmm. um, who wrote like half of the Methodist hymnal. Um, well, I'm named Wesley after the Wesley brothers and their dad and their sister. Um, so that was always a big thing. Like anytime we opened up the hymnal in church and that one of the, the byline of the hymnal was Charles Wesley, I felt that connection. But it's also, I have this weird thing where I remember really good terms of phrase, um, really good lines. Um, so, I mean, the big obvious one being like, I can remember a line from an episode of a TV show seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also I can remember the lyrics of music. And I've never been a big enjoyer of making music other than the worship experience of singing with the group. Um, I quit choir after one year. Um, I briefly played cornet, like the pretentious trumpet. Um, but those were just because as we got old enough that those activities were offered in the public school, our dad made us try them um, and said after doing band and choir for a year, if we didn't like it, we didn't have to do it the next year. So um, my older sister got really into choir and sang in the show choir until graduating high school. My younger sister became an athlete and I became a drama kid. Uh, nice. None and of us a, decided to play an instrument. As a drama <laughs> kid, were you also like in musical theater or? Um, I, I did the, I, by the time I got to high school and I was in the Fremont school system here. And their thing was they had a fall play, which was a drama, not a musical. Uh, winter musical, which was a joint venture of the drama department and the choir department, and then a spring play, which was a comedy. And I would have roles in the plays and I would work tech um, in the musical. Um, and I loved it, but I, and I love musicals, but I am not, not singing and performing in them. So. Mm. I did a lot of the costume work because I knew how to iron a shirt and uh, use a sewing machine. Nice, 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 nice. Um, So music was always something that like you, you experienced and it was sort of like given to you as a thing to do, but was was there anything you were particularly drawn towards? Um, Well, I love songs and music, but I, uh, Come from the come at them from the point of a consumer. Um, so I I kind of think of myself like as a, a musical sommelier. I know a lot about wine. I don't have my own vineyards. I don't make my own wine. Um, but you're a sommelier, which <clears throat> means you're like you're you're fancier than just like I just want a bottle of this and this is like. <laughs> well, yeah, and I I do uh, know a fair amount. I do know a fair amount about musical theory mm-hmm. and I love listening to actual musicians talk, get nerdy about musical theory. But um, like I've talked to you before from the movie Saving Mr. Banks, mm-hmm. um, 
where uh, I forget the the writer's name. It's the story of the woman who wrote um, the Mary Poppins books mm-hmm. and her, her interaction with Walt Disney and turning it into a movie. But there's a scene where she is in the room with the writers because she demanded ultimate creative authority. And they're talking about the, the song with uh, a spoonful of sugar. And they, they get into this and she realizes ultimately that they know what they're doing and that, and that she can trust them when she's listening to them talk about the line makes the medicine go down. Um, and that they, they get into this conversation about the line makes the medicine go down means one thing. The progression of the chord of it going higher means something else. And then it means a third thing when they combine them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the I love going at the intersections of lyrics with the melody and the instrumentation. Uh, one thing I especially like is is when songs don't follow the standard norms. Like I love Britney Spears' "Toxic." Um, and I could never really describe why. And then I was reading an article recently about how she and the the people that she wrote the songs with looked at all these different musical traditions from around the world that it would make standard Western audiences just feel a little off. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so as she was talking about this toxic relationship, and how just being in this relationship makes everyone involved feel bad. She picked chord progressions and and a time meter and all these other things that are just a little left of center to a Western audience. Interesting. So. So it sounds like you're more drawn towards like the culture and like the theory behind it and like getting into like the weeds with with the why of it um Mm -hmm. but i'm curious to like what has been your experience uh as far as like emotionally connecting with music is there a particular well we have a particular song that we plan to talk about today uh which i think is a good example um so for example gentle arms of eden um what is it that draws you towards that song well, the the song is, I just think, really, really well done. But also it fits, the lyrics of it fit so perfectly into my own personal theology. So I describe myself as a mystic humanist, um, which is purposely self-contradictory. Um, so like here, I've, I pulled up these definitions before we started. I appreciate that um, so, so, much. <laughs> so the Google, the definition given by Google from Oxford Languages for humanism is an outlet, look, or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Uh, humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. Then again, the Google definition of mysticism, 
is the belief that union with or absorption into the deity or the absolute or the spiritual apprehension of knowledge um, inaccessible to the intellect may be attained through contemplation and self-surrender. So the, the, the humanist side being humans are ultimately what's important. The only, the only sensible way of making a decision is through logic and rationality and the mystical side of wanting to become one with the divine and having direct interaction with the divine. But the, so part of that, like the, the best example I can give of that is like watching a SciShow video uh, about some obscure little aspect of reality and some scientists somewhere did this incredibly cool experiment or study and came up with something new to know about that aspect and watching that video feeling that they did, the, the people who did the work did it from a scientific rational way. But by learning about what they learned, I have a divine mystic experience. So this song is, was written by Dave Carter, the dearly departed Dave Carter. Uh, is the story of life on earth in, in uh, four verses. And it's from a, a remarkably accurate scientific perspective. So the, the first verse is the first cell becoming alive from unliving stuff that came before. And then the second song is, the second verse is about the one turns into two is the line that gets me and is the story of life becoming multicellular and leaving the oceans for the land. And then the third, the third verse is humans showing up on the scene. And the fourth verse is, okay, we fucked it all up. <laughs> and now it's our responsibility to fix it. Um, but it's a folk song, therefore the Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer are folk performers. It's this bright, peppy melody, but also um, violin, which is just a lovely instrument. And he's not just playing chords, he's also plucking notes on the guitar, which I just love from an aesthetic point. And the first time I heard the song was in church. Um, it was performed at my church's music service, which I was in charge of putting together. Um, was this at the Unitarian so, Church? Yes, uh, Second Unitarian Church of Omaha. Um, and I organized it. I recruited all the people to play. I put everything in order. I did a bunch of research. I wrote uh, a short homily and opening closing words. Um, but I didn't perform any music, but I, that was a way for me to interact with music using the gifts I do have. So. That's cool. And so you, you have like a music coordinator role uh, at your church? I'm a member of the music and worship committee. Got it. And that's the committee I've served on since I joined that church. Um, awesome. And we actually got permission to play a clip of this song on the show, so we're going to listen to it now. On a sleepy, endless ocean, when the world lay in a dream, there was rhythm in the splash and roll, but not a voice to sing. 
But the moon shone on the breakers And the morning warmed the waves Till a single cell did jump and hum For joy as though to say This is my home This is my only home This is the only sacred ground That I've ever known Should I stray In the dark night alone Rock me goddess in the gentle arms of Eden Then the one shone bright and rounder Till the one turned into two And the two I love that. I love the chorus of that and the yes, yes. The this is my own rock me goddess in your in the gentle arms of Eden. Yeah, I've been many things. Um, when the when Cornerstone closed and that was basically the last nail in the coffin of me being a Methodist. Um, there were other nails. Uh, for instance, I came out as gay in in ninth grade, and that was the time when the Methodist Church was dealing with Jimmy Creech, uh, who was performing gay marriages as a Methodist pastor in a Methodist church. Can you unpack um, where that where that landed in the timeline of the the whole discussion they're having now? Like it's like like the cliff notes on that. Oh gosh, the cliff notes. Uh, the Methodist Church has always had this dichotomy between being the middle of the road neighborhood church that everyone is comfortable with. I mean, like the wonderful show, uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The one point in the first season, Ms. Maisel uses Methodist, because the Maisel family is Jewish, uses Methodist to basically mean boring white bread Protestant. Um, but the Methodist church has always had members who, both clergy and laity, who are radical social justice workers. Like the, the American Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, which fused with, I think the Evangelical United Brethren uh, to make the modern United Methodist Church was at the forefront of uh, the civil rights movement. There were, I think somewhere between 10 and 15 American Methodist Episcopal pastors, black and white, who marched with Dr. King on Selma. Uh, there were also Unitarian pastors uh, there. But, uh, the, but the thing is that the Methodist church has this weird, unhealthy habit of kicking down those radical members while they're being radical. And then 30 years, 30 years later, taking credit for being uh, an organization that worked for positive social change. And I'd say that, and that, that's happened over and over and over again through the different incarnations of Methodism going all the way back to the Wesleys fighting against slavery. The modern incarnation is that the United Methodist Church is schisming over a lot of different issues, but currently the big issues are uh, queer marriage, queer ordination, and the Black Lives Matter movement. That was what was really painful for me with the whole Cornerstone incident was that I had been first, I'd been out for four, for, uh, let's see, came out freshman year of high school. This was junior year of, of college. So seven years as an out gay teen and feeling this deep connection to the United Methodist Church. 
and feeling like they didn't have my back. Mm. And then I was, I was in Germany. I mean, I was with a group of my fellow students um, and one of our professors, but I was in Germany and got this uh, email that basically came down to, oh, by the way, this wonderful community that you've been a part of for two and a half years that you've loved and worked for and bonded with is gone now because we don't want to pay for it anymore. Mm. And the, the other song that we were going to talk about, but I didn't hear back about whether we could play clips of it was Blue Boat Home, which is the, this like iconic modern UU song by mm. Peter Mayer, Peter Mayer. Um, and the I, the way I remember it, which might not be accurate, was I asked Father Wesley for a ride to church because he was going to church and I wanted to see what the UU church was like. And we lived in the same dorm. And he said, sure, and went with him and they sang that song. And that was the moment of, oh, I can be part of a religious community that has the same values and same principles as I do. Uh, it does exist. I don't have to settle for a compromise. I don't have to stick with the Methodists just because that's who I grew up with. Um, and then found out that the, th the whole thing, the UU's whole thing is the seven principles and six sources. Although this summer we're voting on whether we're going to add an eighth source to specifically say racism is bad. Eighth, is it eighth source or eighth principle? Or is it, it would be eighth. Eighth principle. principle. Yes, great. Right. It's called. It's called. It's called the eighth principle project. Okay. Um, the first principle is we believe in the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Um, and Blue Boat Home and especially Gentle Arms of Eden really, for me, is are both great explorations of that. No one is alone. No, no action taken by anyone exists in a vacuum. The consequences of that action are going to echo throughout the earth. Um, but the also the uh, I forget which principle I don't have the memory or which source I don't have the memorized even though I want to be a, a UU pastor. Uh, one of our sources is specifically uh, the teachings of humanists, which guard, which warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. Hmm. And that was a an idolatry is such a huge issue for me. Um, I've been a spitfire troublemaker my whole life. Fourth grade, I started refusing to say the Pledge of Allegiance because I considered it idolatry. Or that's what I told them because they mm -hmm. that's what they would, would let me get away with. It was PK definitely energy part of it. Right, there. <laughs> right. And they, it was, it could have become an elementary school version of kneeling during the, the, the uh, national anthem but the teachers were like oh we're not going to win this and we and they had the option of either letting me leave the room during the uh recite recitation of the pledge or just stop saying the pledge which is what they went with 
the UU faith, religion, church, it's different things to different people. We decided that ultimately it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as your beliefs fit these seven principles we're not willing to compromise on. And we love sources. We love getting wisdom wherever we can. Find wisdom where you may. These are the set, the six that are super important to us as an mm. institution, but that's not by any sense an uh, exhaustive list or an exclusive list. Mm. So... Yeah, no, and that's and that's one thing I I love uh, about being being you you and also like I mean we're gonna get really meta here like why I think this podcast is important because it's all about figuring out where we find truth in different places and how um, we can find these commonalities of what of what resonates and what inspires us um, mm -hmm. and. It makes me think of what you said that I'm still stuck on something you said the other day, which you on one of our meetings where you said something, I believe it was idolatry is putting the process is when the process becomes more important than the product. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that was... off on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my personal definition. Um, and it works really well for me. But the uh, one thing that really get that I love from studying world religions is that it is against Muslim tradition to make any sort of picture, sculpture, depiction of any sort of Muhammad, uh, bless be his name. That the because the words and work of the prophet are more important than the person of the prophet. Um, and the, it, it also, they, it also goes back to the first, the commandment, the 10 commandments, uh, again, I don't have them memorized, so I don't know which one it is, uh, that thou shalt not make for yourself so grave an image. Um, like, was that like then, one or three or I'm a bad former Catholic. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> the only, the only one I know by its number is, is one. I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Cool. Uh, and then it, I know that the first three are the ones about dealing with God. Mm -hmm. So two is either no graven images or don't take the Lord's name in vain, and three is whichever one two isn't. And then the rest of the, the rest of the ten are about humans dealing with each other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. For for the record, as a Unitarian, I still have to look up the, the order of the principles. So, like, I'm just forgetful on all. Yeah, of <laughs> I have the little laminated. I have the little laminated card of the seven and the six yeah. in my wallet, but I don't have my wallet on me. Uh, do you ever but use the children's song? The the. <laughs> I didn't know there was a children's song. Okay, well, you don't have the. Well, I'm gonna sing it anyway. It's probably public domain, but it's the one. Each person is important to be kind in all you do. Three, we're free to work together. Four, and search for what is true. Five, all people have a vote. Six, have fair, <laughs> build a fair and peaceful world. Seven, we care for Earth's lifeboat. And that brings us back to, yeah, and I don't know how we get back to it. But also, we, awesome. need to, we need to respect <laughs> the word, like, just shoving in there 
on on six and seven because that is the most unitarian nonsense where it's just like this doesn't scan (laughs) (laughs) well Um, like i do that i do that i do that a lot i rewrite prayers and rituals and verses of songs to use when in services that i help put together uh one of i think my most popular Facebook post I ever made was I rewrote the Lord, the Lord's Prayer, the Pater Nostrum, to be about Senator Sanders at the inauguration in his mittens. Um, and it was Would our you like senator. To share some of that. <laughs> oh gosh, uh, it was. I just remember the first line was, "Our Senator who art in mittens, Bernie, be thy name." <laughs> the only place I can think to look it up is I sent it in an email to my pastor let's see if i can ah there it is the potter bernie our senator who are in mittens bernie be thy name thy budget pass thy working class in u.s as it is in scandinavia give us this day our living wage and forgive give us our student debt as we forgive nonviolent crimes and drug offenses lead us not into class warfare but deliver us from plutocracy for thine is the reform, the solution, and the survival forever. May it be so. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, like yeah. the, 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 we've been, when we were talking about the uh, potential theme song for uh, Blessed Lunatics, the reward, a the reward podcast. Exclusive podcast. Um. Yes. <laughs> um, and you, you were talking about the melody and the and the instrumentation and wanting to ba- base it around tis a gift to be simple because it's such a plucky bouncy melody that would go well with the comedy and i sat down and rewrote the lyrics for for tis a gift to be simple oh my goodness <laughs> so the i love i love the words words are what i'm good at um so that that's that's cool. Well, and there and there's and there's something I mean, it's interesting cuz as someone who writes both lyrics and music, like the way the lyrics connect and like inspiration hits in that way is it's a little mm-hmm. bit like different than how it hits musically and it, but also it's it's a very similar flow that happens and I find in speaking it's it's you know sometimes like when when you're figuring out the right words for something it's just like things things just come out and then you're like whoa okay okay where where did you come from but um but there's a but as far as lyric and parody goes there is a there's a playfulness with parody that i really enjoy and like the craft of making sure everything lines up perfectly and like Mm and like the game of like oh i can i can take these rules and i can twist them around a little bit um and also that's just a very unitarian choice because uh th- there's so many unitarian inside jokes on this podcast today but uh if you yeah. uh, <laughs> well put, if you put two yous together if you put two you you use together they will remember. they'll have at least three opinions yeah they'll have at least three opinions i like that um <laughs> uh but anyway, uh, we our hymnal. There's a lot of like classic, uh, like I guess, uh, Protestant hymns, and also I mean, there's a lot of spirituals and stuff in there. But also like there's some things where they like rewrite the lyrics and 
it's it's a whole it's a whole song and dance where it's like okay we're making this more well, inclusive and we're changing things well but also what i think is lovely is that sometimes a lot of the times the things people think we rewrote to be more humanist and in- inclusive are actually we went back to the original lyrics oh interesting. that had been that had been rewritten to be more christian um so like the one that springs to mind is um in our hymnal it's lo the earth awakes again uh-huh. and it's a song about spring and the only mention of easter is in the third verse there's a line that mentions this is the promise of easter fulfilled in the methodist hymnal that hymn is christ the lord is risen today that was the rewrite oh wow somebody heard somebody heard this unitarian song that was all about spring and rebirth and the cycle of forgiveness and resurrection that yeah that's very eastery but a protestant minister heard this unitarian hymn and rewrote it to be explicitly about the christian um easter narrative and both versions are wonderful they're both amazing uh examples of good writing but the humanist is the older so Oh, that's fascinating. And that is a whole dive we could go down. And I am learning, like, I, that that's been such a running joke about how Unitarians just rewrote these classic hymns. But oh, man, you just well actually be into a completely different rabbit hole, uh, which I will have to go down. Uh, not now, but I we, we will <laughs> talk about that further. Um, I had, so I had a question for you, and this has become the question that I ask everybody, which is, where does inspiration land in your body? Where do things, when things resonate, where do you feel it? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, (laughs) The first one that always, that always gets me to like, and this isn't the first one I feel, but the first one that I thought of is, right? where your spine meets your skull um Mm. the the c1 vertebrae i think it's called the atlas because it's holding up your head um and where and the foramen magnum the because i remember random words uh the the hole in the base of your skull where your brainstem attaches to your spinal cord um and i i just get this this sort of tingly itchy feeling of like I really need to pop my neck, but also that my brain is full and it's pouring out faster than the spine can carry it away. Um, But that's usually how I feel when I actually sit down to a project and start working productively. Um, But the the first is my calves. twitchy, you got to get up and walk and move feeling. Um, so. so I talked about when I was at seminary in California, I got sick and had to go on disability and move back to Nebraska. It was, uh, I, it was a major depressive episode. Um, mm. 
I've lived with depression my whole life. I was diagnosed in like third grade. I've uh, been on and off medications, but this was the first time I actually felt suicidal and I was hospitalized. Um, and my depression, when it gets really bad, uh, starts manifesting uh, schizoid symptoms, um, hallucinations and really powerful intrusive thoughts and whatnot. So I had to go on an antipsychotic to keep the hallucinations in check. And the big side effect was restless leg syndrome. And this is, I, I didn't really put this together until I started until you asked the question and I started talking about it, but I didn't get to go off of those antipsychotics for three years um, until the fall of 2019. So, and during that time, I didn't make anything. I didn't write anything good. I mean, I was still going through the, the motions of writing because I am a writer, but like looking back at documents on my computer that I wrote during that time, they're just insensible garbage. <laughs> mm. And I, I know, I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel like I wasted that chunk of time. Um, it was necessary to survive. But I, I wonder if some of it was that if my inspiration enters through my calves and feels like an urge to get up and walk, then while I was on these medicines that had the side effect of my legs never being able to be still, never feeling right if that cut the inspiration off at the source it's an it's an interesting thought i mean it could also i mean i think a, I, it could also be like perception and like this idea that if you if if you associate that feeling with both i'm being inspired and also this is a bad thing you know like if if your brain is telling you two different things it's really right. hard to like focus and write anything, I would imagine. I mean. Right. Yeah, but that's but, interesting. And also just, I was incredibly depressed. Yeah. I was, yeah. And the, <laughs> that joke we made about two, if two Unitarians are in a room, you're gonna have three opinions. That for such severe mental illness, it's, I'm hearing five thoughts, which one is my actual thought and which four are my brain lying to me? Mm. Yeah, that it's thank you for thank you for being open on that and um, and sharing that because I don't think I heard have heard it broken down in that way. So that's yeah. really, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to have these, these conversations about what that actually looks or feels like. Um, mm -hmm. But the, I guess the one thing that we hadn't actually come to that I wanted to, the big thing for me at, in faith is responsibility. Um, faith isn't, faith isn't supposed to absolve you of responsibility. Uh, that would be idolatry in the sense of 
process over product. Uh, faith is supposed to guide you to your responsibilities. Uh, the product is making you into a person that can have a positive impact on the world. Uh, so if your faith is saying, uh, you mentioned growing up Catholic, if your faith is saying to you, all right, um, you had lustful feelings for another boy, do 500 Hail Marys. The process of doing 500 Hail Marys became more important than the product of learning how to have healthy, fulfilling relationships that make you a better person and in turn help you make the, the world better. In that instance, Catholicism would be idolatrous. In, in that instance, yes. And well, in that, that instance. That, yeah, and that particular, I mean, looking at that, um, yeah, it becomes so much about what, like, you did the bad thing, and here are the things that you need to do. Like, like, all right, this pay the toll, go pay the toll. Like, we're not going to talk about, mm -hmm. like, how can you improve that further? What lessons can you learn? Like, what, what can you do better? How can you grow as a person? You know, like, uh, what is your limiting belief if you want to go into like the coaching aspect or whatever? No, it's just like, oh, go pay the toll. Here you go. All right. Right. Do better next time. And I, and that's not at all exclusive to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And that is not a description of what all Catholicism is like. One of my professors when I was at seminary was a Benedictine monk. And he talked so beautifully, so movingly about what confession can be like when the confessor goes in, or the person doing confession goes in with an open heart and the priest taking the confession, which is the person who's actually called the confessor, confusingly, uh, is good at it. And then in that case, it is like you described. Uh, it's, what is what is my harmful belief? What is what behavior do I patterns of behavior do I need to change, etc. Yeah, which also like priests aren't supposed to be therapists, but like something adjacent to that would be useful <laughs> compared to the the element of shame. Um, right. Yeah. Right. But also, I I do believe that shame has its place. So, um, okay, we're, we're, we're just going into, I, I just need to know now where go with that. What? <laughs> that, well, like my, my therapist who I, whom I love, uh, she's wonderful. Um, one of her big things is that, uh, emotion, all emotions are messages about how you should react to the world. And like I said earlier, when you are mentally ill, your brain lies a lot. Um, that I think is, I'm gonna call that my definition of mental illness, the way that process before product is my definition of idolatry. But so anger and shame is anger turned inward. Mm. 
It's something is wrong with me and I need to change it. And that is, can be misused just like anything can be misused and has been misused a lot by a lot of different faiths. But like if you, if a racist clan member realizes that he is ashamed to talk about being a racist clan member to the girl that he's going on a date with and feels that shame and it makes him stop and reevaluate his life, that's a good thing. That's shame doing what it should be doing. Um, and the hue, the, and basically a person who cannot feel shame, who never thinks that they've done wrong is a sociopath, is Trump. Yes, and I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, so I, I think that, um, no, shame, shame is useful. I think that the issue is, is, is when is is learning to know when it's a when it's useful feedback and when it's something that is uh, programming that we want to work through and heal. But it's, but it's pointing at oh yes, that needs to be healed. Um, we we're gonna have to have a whole other conversation. I think that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> it's a good thing we have a podcasting network together. So Wesley, uh, I mean, people can find you on the in the new faith, new media, uh, you know, community. But where where's the best people f place for people to find you on the internet? And what what all are you doing? Well, this was really the the new faith, new media has become my baby. Um, I don't currently have my own show on it. Um, I do editing and support for Pastor and a Priest, the new uh, Walk Into a Movie Theater, the sister podcast to this one. Um, and I'm helping, leading the charge on organizing the network as a whole. Um, basically, I need to... Uh, <laughs> I do have a Tumblr, but I haven't posted any of my stuff on it. So now you're you're inspiring me to. Um, I don't. I'd have to look up what my Tumblr actually is. <laughs> well, you know what? We can put we can put links for those things in the show notes. So the 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 right, assorted right. places where you can find Wesley in this moment will be in the show notes. Um, right. Wesley, thank, thank you. you so much for being on the show and sharing everything with me. And, uh, yeah, this is, this is so great. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Faith and What Resonates. The theme music for this show is My Journey, My Song, the first song I wrote back when I was 19. This song has an epic backstory, and I'll tell you about it in a future episode. Faith and What Resonates is part of the New Faith New Media Network. You can find out more about what we do by following the New Faith New Media Network on Facebook and Instagram. You can also discuss this and other episodes in our Facebook group. We have another show, A Pastor and a Priest Walk Into a Movie Theater, hosted by the Reverend Michelle Byerly and Father Andrew Miller. You'll find that show on whatever platform you found this one on. If you like what we do and you want to support that work directly, you can support the New Faith New Media Network on Patreon. All Patreon supporters get access to our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Blessed Lunatics. If you want to know more about the things I do in the world, you can head to my website, gailgallaghermusic.com. 
Thanks for listening, and remember to stay curious and keep following the magic of the things that resonate.